Thanks, Matt. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you today, and uh, it's a, a wonderful thing to be at UPC. I love this church because I know so many people who go here. Um, I'm thinking, Matt, you're a graduate, right? 2009, okay, and you're in the DMIN program. One of our profs, uh, Keith Johnson, is here. I saw him in the back row. Keith, where are you? Just wave it there. Okay, you've moved. Okay. Uh, and then Scott Swain, my dean of faculty. Scott, where are you? There he is, right there. These guys are great guys. They are such a blessing to our students. One of the things that we get discouraged about, we're, we're encouraged about so many things, but at the end of two or three years, we see our students go, and, uh, and that's kind of sad. We're, we're shooting them out. We're thinking like Josh is about the, the uh, students here. They are our arrows, you know, the extended influence for Jesus Christ all over the world. If you don't know much about RTS, I brought some propaganda with me, and it's on the back table. Um, there's the M&L magazine. If you'd like to subscribe to it, you can sign up and we'll send it to you every month. Uh, but if you're at all interested in taking some graduate courses, going to the next level in your understanding and your growth in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, talk to one of these guys. Uh, consider auditing a class or take a class for credit or get into a degree program. We have a master's in counseling, master's of biblical studies, master of theological studies, uh, an MDiv, Master of Divinity, and then a, a Doctor of Ministry program. And uh, we think that there's some powerful stuff for building up the Church of Jesus Christ. If you have a Bible, I hope you do, would you please turn it to the Gospel of John. I'd like to read two passages. First, John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, and then John 8, verse 12. Would you please stand as we read God's Word? John 3, beginning at verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And then just a couple pages over, John chapter 8. Verse 12, and again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us, not leaving us in the dark. Thank you for the scriptures by which every week you, you feed our souls, you guide us and so we ask that you would speak yet again and uh, speak to our minds and hearts and wills that we may live for you. All this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. University mottos fascinate me. Does anybody know the motto of UCF? Oh, come on. Really? I don't either. <laughs> no, I think it's something like reach for the stars or reach for the sky or something like that. But um, uh, the, the ones that really interest me are, are the ones like Columbia University. Its motto is, in thy light shall we see light. Or think of uh, Freiburg University. The truth shall make you free. You heard that before? Or how about Princeton? Under God's power, she flourishes. Or how about the University of Glasgow? Via Veritas Vita. The way, the truth, and the life. Or how about the University of Aberdeen? The fear of the Lord 
is the beginning of wisdom. Or how about the original motto of Harvard? They've shortened it, but the original motto was truth for Christ and the church. Did you know that? Or Oxford, the oldest university in the English-speaking world, founded in 1096, Dominus Illuminatia Mea, which is Latin for the Lord is my light, as in Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? I suspect that we forget the way that the Bible and the gospel and Jesus Christ so dramatically transformed our world. That the early universities grew out of a theological vision that was rooted in Christ and a God who speaks. That they were the first fruit of the second mission to the Western world. You know, the first great mission to the Western world, missionary mission I'm talking about, uh, led to the uh, conversion of Rome. The second great mission to the Western world led to the conversion of barbarian Europe. So if you go back far enough and look at the original impulse and motivation behind many of these universities, you'll see that their origin had a lot to do with the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And you'll remember that his coming had and still has a transforming effect on people, people groups, and cultures. I hope you have your Bibles open uh, to Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 12. And I want you to look at one verse and think about one verse. Verse 12 is, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I'd like you to consider for a little while um, a verse that's going to help you better understand the the, uh, identity of Jesus, who he is, uh, who you are. Um, and and who you are as a church, as UPC. So we want to look, first of all, at three important truths. The identity of Jesus, then secondly, the reality of darkness, and thirdly, the invitation to follow him. So John chapter 8, verse 12, let's begin by thinking a little bit about the identity of Jesus. Who is he? You ever, ever have a friend who said, who is Jesus? People ask that in Jesus' day, you know, who 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 is this one who's doing miracles and who's teaching these things. Jesus asked that himself. He said, who do people say that I am? But right here in verse 12, he gives an answer. He says, I am the light of the world. What an extravagant claim. All the more so when you see its setting. He said that and people would have perhaps thought of three things. They would have thought of what the Old Testament says about light. They would have thought maybe about the temple where they were that very day. And uh, those reading it probably would have thought of the other things that John has to say about the light of Jesus Christ. Well, think about just the biblical setting of that very powerful, extravagant claim. I am the light of the world. You know, you go back to the beginning of the Bible and God says in the beginning, um, it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be, what was the first thing that he created? Let there be light, and there was light. So he separated the light from the darkness, and he called the light good. And uh, so he is the one who creates all of light. Now, that's pretty astonishing when you think about it. We're dazzled by the sun, right? Because we know that the sun, you know, helps orange trees to grow. The sun causes life. Uh, You can, in Florida, it's one of the only places in the United States where you can go to one coast in the morning and watch the sun rise in glorious array, and then you can quickly travel to the other coast and you can watch it set in the evening. Have you ever done that? 
My daughter did that recently, and she said, Dad, it was absolutely awesome. When Genesis used those words about God creating the light, it was making a point that the sun is not God, but God is God, and God made all the lights. He's that great. In fact, the rest of Scripture uh, goes on to say that He is the one who stretched out the heavens, which means that the origin of the 100 billion galaxies that we can count with around 300 billion stars, the origin of that light source is God himself. Pretty amazing. Pretty astounding, you know. The energy, the power, the brilliance, the marvelous light of God himself, let alone the lights that he's made. Now, light is beautiful, it's powerful, and it's mysterious. It can be separated into many colors. It's made up of, well, you know, scientists have debated this. What's it made up of? Particles or waves? Wave theory is current. Visible light is a form of electromagnetic radiation. It constitutes just a small part of the electromagnetic spectrum. So we know something about physical light and how spectacular and glorious it is. When Jesus referred to light, some were thinking probably of the great lights. Um, light is also used as a symbol in Scripture uh, of uh, intellectual, moral, and spiritual light. So you think about intellectual light, it refers to truth or knowledge. You think about moral light, it refers to holiness or purity. You think about spiritual light, it symbolizes blessing and good things. And so when the psalmist said, the Lord is my light, he was saying that God is the source of all this light. Not just the lights out there, but the light of my life. The source of intellectual, moral, spiritual light. This is a declaration of confidence from the psalmist. And when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, some of these things were in the background. Some of the people knew these statements and they, they would have thought of them when they first heard this. When we affirm our faith in the Nicene Creed, there's this phrase, you know, that Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, through him, it says, all things were made. It's amazing, isn't it? Think about Jesus as the light of the world. But then there was also the Jerusalem setting of this passage. So when you look at verse 12, the little phrase, again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, is an important little phrase, again, is a reference back to chapter 7, because Jesus is speaking at the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 2 of chapter 7 tells us he went up to the to the temple. He was teaching there. Uh, verse 37 of chapter 7 tells us it was the last day of the feast. The them would be the crowds who were flooded in to celebrate, uh, including the Pharisees and the people bringing their offerings. The exact time that Jesus said this, we're not exactly sure because um, it doesn't tell us, but it could have been right after the feast had ended. The place we know, because verse 20 of chapter 8 tells us, he was in the court of the women where the treasury was, where people would drop their offerings into these 13 large vats and bring their offerings to the Lord. One of the customs, though, of the Feast of Tabernacles at this time was they would have these large, absolutely huge candlesticks, the temple's menorah, and they would light them in the evening. And all of a sudden there would be this huge fire and glow coming out of the temple, the, the center of Jerusalem. And if you looked at Jerusalem from the distance, you would have seen a, a glow over the city like you sometimes see a glow over Orlando if you look down south at night. And so in the evening, 
The Mishnah, a Jewish source, says men of piety and good works during the Feast of Tabernacles would dance through the night with burning torches in their hands, singing praise to God and Levitical orchestras cutting loose. Can you imagine, you know, some sources say every night that took place. And so when the light went out at the end of the time, it went back into darkness. But that light in the Feast of Tabernacles was a symbol of the pillar of light that we read about in Exodus. Remember the pillar of light that led Israel through the wilderness and God was present in that light. He protected them. He guided them. He illumined their path for them. It was a reminder that he was there with them. Those great torches symbolized the Shekinah glory of the living God. And so here Jesus in that environment with maybe the torches still smoldering from the night before makes the stunning claim that I am the light of the world. That pillar points to me. I bring light not just to Jerusalem, but to the world at large. He's claiming to be God. He is claiming to be the presence of God who protects and guides and illumines his people. It's pretty amazing because he's saying, this light is extinguished here in the temple, but my light does not get extinguished. It's inexhaustible. It's a light that produces light. Now we know that the Pharisees didn't buy this, right? You can read the next few verses and they, they enter into a debate. They challenge Jesus. They mock him. They said, who do you think you are to say this kind of thing? You need another witness. And of course, Jesus said, I have another witness. My father and I are the witnesses that we need. And then Jesus went on to say, and you don't know my father. They had no real knowledge of God. It's pretty stunning when we think of his claim in the context, the setting of Jerusalem at the time he said this. Not only that, there's a third setting that helps us understand this claim that he makes, and that is the the setting of John's gospel. If you've ever read John's gospel from the front to the back, you know it's a very powerful tract about Jesus Christ. And you know that John will tell us who Jesus is by recording these I am statements. Now, can you think of any of the I am statements from the gospel of John? Do any come to mind? Anybody? I am the vine, right. What else? I am the way, the truth, and the life. What else did he say? I'm the bread of life, right. And I am the the good shepherd. Uh, And uh, uh, then, you know, he said, I am the light of the world. Now, he's saying, really, that he's no mere man. He is man, but he's much, much more than a man. And, of course, John, at the beginning of the gospel, if you look at chapter 1... He tells us that this Jesus, the great I am, is the word, the eternal word, the word who is God in him. He says, verse four was life and the life was what the light of men. The light was the life of men. Verse nine of chapter one, he goes and adds more. He says the true light, which enlightens every person was coming into the world. In Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is the light of the world. He's the source of all the light that we've ever seen. He's the light which gives light to every light. He's the generator, the nuclear reactor, if you will, of all the light that is. He's the sun by which we see things. Now, when you think about the coming of Jesus in light of that, it's pretty remarkable because 
when Jesus came to this world, he transformed and touched so many different areas of our world. He brought light to the human race. And we've forgotten pretty much how he did that. He transformed his disciples and they went on to make disciples of all nations. And they uh, spread the influence of Jesus Christ. Many historians have written about how Jesus gave the gift of dignity to the ancient world. That all of a sudden there was one who said, you know what? Little children matter. We can't expose them in the streets. Women matter. The elderly matter. They're made in the image of God. Slaves have dignity. By the way, Christianity has been the force to um, uh, turn over the slave trade twice in Western history. Not only did he give us the gift of dignity, but his light gave us this vast humanitarian impulse. I mean, there was a, a kindness that was unleashed in the ancient world because of Christ who said, love your neighbor, love your enemy. He gave the gift of languages and literacy, many historians will note, because his followers went all over the world and they encountered people who had no written language and they wrote it down for them so that they could read the word, the scriptures, and have the word of God in their own language. He gave the gift of health care. Did you know that the hospitals in the Western world, the earliest hospitals, were all founded for the glory of God or because of Jesus Christ or the influence of Christians who started the, the hospital movement? The gift of science, you could say, in the Western world, because our early scientists were believers in Christ and they operated from a Christian worldview that the universe was rational and that God, nature is not God, so we can touch it and experiment with it. And into so many fields you can go in and you can see the influence of Jesus Christ, so much so that Phillips Brooks, a New England preacher, once said, all the armies that have ever marched and all the navies that have ever sailed uh, and all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of this world on earth as much as that one solitary life. But do you know what happened in education? Do you know how Christ transformed education? I mean, Jesus, of course, was the greatest teacher the world has ever known. He is the word made flesh. And he gave the word to his followers. And he charged them to make disciples, teaching the nations to obey all that he commanded. And Acts chapter 5, verse 42 says, they never stop teaching that Jesus is the Christ. And so you see them start to establish schools. There's a, a Paul in Ephesus starting a, a school and a lecture hall. There are early Christians creating instruction manuals for new Christians. There are catechetical schools where they pass on the faith to the new believers. And then there's the creation of monasteries, which were not just separate little enclaves of Christians, but many of them had schools and clinics attached to them. And there were kings who would say, we need, after the kings came to Christ, I'm thinking particularly of Charlemagne, the king of the Franks, who said, Every community should have a monastery which establishes schools in every community. And then came the Reformation, which took education out of the cloister and spread it around the globe. And the reformers were the ones to advocate for the first time in the world universal education. And you think of all the different educational ventures that sprang out of Christ followers who were motivated by the light and life of Jesus. I mean, you can think about the invention of kindergarten founded by a Christian or the invention of school for the deaf or school for the blind. Lewis Braille was a dedicated Christian or the beginning of Sunday schools. Why do we do what we do here? 
Uh, Well, Christ is motivating that. Or the beginning of libraries. Or the origin of universities. Like a place like the University of Paris. The first Western University. Or the second. There's a little debate on that. But it came out of the Cathedral of Notre Dame. And scholars hung around the cathedral. And they started doing lectures and disputations and talking with each other. And they gathered students around them. And that became the core of the University of Paris. And some of them went to England. And they started another university near Oxen Ford, a stream where there was a monastery in Oxford. And it became the University of Oxford. And students from there went on to start Cambridge. And students from Cambridge went on to start Harvard University. And you think of the early universities in the United States, Harvard, William & Mary, Yale, Northwestern, Columbia, Princeton, Brown. And they all started as Christian schools. In fact, you could say every college and university that you see, let alone every school that you see, public or private, religious or secular, is a visible reminder of the influence of Jesus Christ. And I would add even UCF. They were all born... If you go back, there's the original impulse of Jesus Christ and people to know his word and to follow in his light. I mean, do you understand how great the Savior is that you claim to worship today? He is the light of the world. Well, there's a second important truth here, and I'll state it even more briefly. Not only do we see in this verse the um, identity of Jesus, we, we learn about the reality of darkness. There's that little phrase, the one following me will not, what? Read it for me. Will not walk in darkness. Walk in darkness. That's a a scary and sometimes a tragic thought, isn't it? My father-in-law, Christina's dad, when he was in his 60s, he he was a geologist. And so they took a rafting trip down the, uh, the river that goes through the Grand Canyon. And it's often a beautiful trip, but his raft got overturned. And so um, he had to go to the side, and uh, it got dark, and he had to climb out of the Grand Canyon at night without a light or anything. Can, can you, I've, I've hiked the Grand Canyon, uh, and it's a beautiful place, but just, you think, that is very, very dangerous. It's scary to think about walking in the, in the darkness. Well, Scripture affirms the reality of darkness, It lets us know that this world, there is darkness. And by darkness, we mean evil and sin. It exists and it it, it descends and it enslaves people. Our world uh, doesn't like to admit that there is darkness or evil. In fact, bring evil up in a classroom at the university and you'll probably be laughed at. In fact, in in New York City, there was pretty much a complete dismissal of evil. But by 9-11... Um, postmoderns in New York were so stunned by what had happened that they started resorting to the language of evil again. And, and with ISIS and everything else, it's still, still happening. People know that there's something radically wrong and broken in the world. But Scripture goes further than that and says, what is wrong with the world is in every human heart. And if you think about uh, John and what he says in chapter 1, remember, John says... Um, The word came into the world and the world was made by him, but the world didn't know him that he came to his own. That is the life and light of the world came to his own people and his own people didn't receive him. You read that and you think, what is going on? Why not? 
Why wouldn't they receive the light and life of the world? And of course, John 3, what we read earlier, helps us because it says that this is the judgment. The light is coming into the world, but people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. And everyone who does wicked things hates the light. I mean, it, we, stand, we stand condemned with that. I mean, Scripture says that this brokenness in the world is not just out there. It's not just in the person we think is really far gone. It's in us. There's something radically wrong in my human heart and your human heart. The reality of darkness. Scripture in the Old Testament calls sin the insanity of the heart. Think about it. It speaks of the mystery of iniquity. I remember when I was a pastor in Denver, I just got to this church and we lived in Littleton, Colorado. You ever hear of Littleton? And uh, my first year, one morning, I got up and I was off that day and I turned on the radio and it said two gunmen uh, opened fire their classmates at Columbine High School. And uh, I rushed to Columbine because I, li- I was about two miles away. And I got through the police barricades because I was a pastor and I volunteered as a crisis counselor. But my week was an amazing week because it ended up that I had a media role. Just, it just happened, uh, you know, and I was asked to be on with the governor on CNN, with uh, MSNBC, political talk shows, for an entire week uh, to help explain things. And during one talk show um, on MSNBC with Lawrence O'Donnell, you know that name? They were saying, well, Pastor, what do you think motivated this? What, what was going on? And, of course, there were many different factors. There was uh, the, the media violence. There were uh, all kinds of things. But I said, listen, the heart of the problem is the problem of the human heart, that there's something radically wrong with the human heart. Of course, Lawrence O'Donnell didn't like that, and we had a little discussion. But uh, um, Scripture here, Jesus is, is affirming, he does many times in the Gospels, and John affirms the reality of darkness. The insanity that grips our hearts. And by the way, this insanity grips the Western world as well at the present time. Many have written about the ABC insanity that's gripping our culture. Anything but Christianity. ABC. You, you feel it, don't you? You sense it when you listen to the media. Os Guinness says we are a cut flower civilization. We, we have been cut off from the root that nourished us. We have separated ourselves from the thing that gave us our life. You know, not only is the story of the growth of the university an interesting story, but the story of the secularization of the university is a very interesting story. The Western University began with the vision that the Lord is my light. But over time, it got watered down, and that vision became something different. It became light is my light. And over time, that eventually changed, and it became, my light is my light. Catch the difference? I mean, it happened so subtly. It, they were, these schools were founded with the firm belief that Dominus Illuminati Emea, the Lord is my, my light. But you know how it goes. You know how God gives us many good gifts. And over time, you look at the gift, whether it's your strength or your beauty or or the good things that you have, and all of a sudden, these things become, well, the passion of your heart. And God gets pushed to the side. And the light that people loved in education became the central thing, and God got pushed aside. Light is my light. You look at the history of 19th century America and its universities, and they're all saying things like, light more light, light this, light that. And the God part of the equation gets dropped. 
And then over time, there's another subtle shift in the 20th century where we move to my light is my light. And people say, I don't even know. The intellectual says, I don't even know if light exists or truth exists. But I know about my light and your light and my reality and your reality and my truth and your truth. And so we speak like that, don't we? And the self defines absolutely everything and truth is all relative. And you see this this slipping away from the light. By the way, people sometimes say there's another step of confusion that can be taken and that is when you invert everything and you move a step further and you say darkness is my light and light is darkness and then you are in Romans chapter 1, aren't you? Well, like I said, walking in darkness is a very scary and tragic image. It's sad when light fades from a life or from a university or from a culture. And the lesson here is surely that ignore Jesus and you'll stay in darkness. Pull away from Jesus. You descend into darkness, but follow Jesus and come to him and you enter into his light. And of course, John is wonderful because he says, look, It's the light that wins at the end of the day. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot comprehend it. It cannot extinguish it. It cannot overcome it. Darkness doesn't have the final word. The final word is with Jesus and with his life and death and resurrection and coming again. So we look at this verse and come to grips with the reality of his light and the reality of human darkness. And we grasp that this darkness is very real in our time, but it's not the final word. Scripture says that someday all the peoples of the world, um, they, the, the world will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord and the light of the Lord. But there's one last thing here to to take a quick look at, and that is this invitation. I love that this verse has an invitation. Did you catch it? There is a way out of darkness. The whole section reads, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Follow me and and you will by no means, there's a double negative here, you will by no means walk in darkness anymore if you stay close to me. Follow me as a disciple. Learn from me and my word. Follow me and my word will illuminate your life. You say, really? How? How does his word illuminate my life? Well, it gives us life-giving truth. He gives us light to show us what it means to be human. He gives us light to make sense of what's going on around us. He gives us light to guide us in our relationships so that we don't have all these relational messes all over our life. He gives us light to see ourselves as we really are. He gives us light on the diverse interests of our life, finance. He sheds light on that and health and justice and beauty and aging and gender. He sheds light on sex and brokenness upon our wounds as human beings. He gives us a big picture of our life's journey so we can get the big story. Now, that doesn't mean there are not going to be mysteries in life. Of course, there are going to be mysteries. But he gives us a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. He takes away our, our darkness. And so I want to close by just posing this question. We have this wonderful invitation here, but who is it for? 
Who is this for? Whoever follows me. Whoever. Well, first of all, I think it was to the people of Jerusalem. Those who were rushing through the temple on that day. They heard Jesus' voice. They could see the menorah smoldering. And some rejected, like the Pharisees, and some followed him. Who was the invitation for? Well, it was also for the whole world. He said, I am the light, not just of Jerusalem, but I'm the light of the world. I'm the, the light of individuals everywhere. Uh, if you want meaning and purpose, you'll find it in me. If you're looking for goodness, beauty, and truth, you'll find it in me. Don't get enamored with secondary lights. Come to the source. Follow me, receive me, believe in me. So the invitation is certainly for the world. I kind of think that this invitation is also for the university. In a strange way, I think that the Lord speaks and says, don't ignore Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's insanity to cut him out of your world. But one last thing that I feel convicted by the Holy Spirit to say to this church is I think this invitation is also for UPC. I was talking to Matt about what to preach on and we talked about different topics and and uh, and I I don't like to do canned sermons. I have actually never preached this before anywhere. I just had this conviction that this is a timely word for UPC. You have the light of life. This church is a lampstand. You know, that's one of John's favorite images of the church in the book of Revelation. He uses it. I looked at the candles and I thought, I love those candles. It reminds me that this church is, it's, it's a lampstand. One reason that you exist is to hold out that light in this community. That is your calling. You know, churches can get lost as easily as individuals and sometimes they drift and forget who they are. When I talk to pastors, I always say, go back to the beginning. What, what did the people who prayed for the church, what were they hoping for? What was in the DNA? What did they sense was God's call? Where did God providentially place you? And I thought about UPC and all the churches in the Orlando area and how God providentially placed you near this huge, growing university. And I imagine that when UCF was founded... The founders of UPC had no idea that it would become the second largest public university in the United States and probably soon will become the largest public university in the United States, which is the lead society of the modern world, and that your church would be, what, how many minutes away? Two minutes away. Don't overlook your name. Don't overlook your calling. Don't be reluctant to make some changes to fulfill that mission. Take seriously the unique role that's been given to you, not to Willow Creek, not to River Oaks, not to St. Paul's, not to Northland. You know, they're wonderful churches with a wonderful mission, but God set you here for a reason. And that reason is to hold forth the light of Christ who is the light of the world. Do you have his light? Have you personally received his light? That's one thing you have to ask yourself when you read Jesus' words. And if you've never received him, of course, today could be the day where you confess, the Lord is my light.
lead me out of darkness. But not only is the question, have you received him, a relevant question, but will you hold out that light in this community? That's the question for you as a whole. Would you bow your heads as we pray? Lord God, what a blessing and privilege it is to share the word of God here today. Thank you for your great work all over the world, but your work here for the people who planted and watered and for the pastoral team that's here now in session, for all the leaders. And Lord, we bless you today for your marvelous light. It's more marvelous than we thought when we walked in here today. Help us to run to it, not from it. Help us to live in it, not away from it. Help us to hold it up as a lampstand. And we ask this in the strong and glorious name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said.